I'll be reading from the ESV translation, Exodus 15, 22 to 27. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Uh, may the Lord bless the reading of his word and bless his people. in your sufficiency, Lord, in giving us uh, your word, Father. I pray that we will humble ourselves to receive well, Father, from the food that you would have us to drink, God. Lord, I pray that you will be with us. Lord, help us to obey you better, grow our faith. Lord, help us in this new year uh, to prioritize um, what it is you want us to prioritize. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. My long history as a student has taught me that tests are inevitable. Uh, Most of you know I've been to school for many years and I've taken many tests and taken many classes and I remember my very first test all the way back in uh, at the end of my third grade year. Um, I'd been told it was coming. We were getting ready for it. My mom woke me up. I got dressed and then she sent me off on the school bus with a very ominous good luck. So I got on the school bus, we got to school, I got onto the playground, it was way quieter than it normally is, it seemed like all the kids were marching to their own doom. Um, And so we got into the classroom and the teachers were nervous and chatty and were trying to get things together, pencils were being sharpened, hushes were going all through the room. Uh, On the desk was this white book that said, do not open, which was very confusing because they didn't told us to open them. Um, and so we took the pencil, and you know how it is, and my, my uh, story of my first test is very ironic, and then I went to open it with my pencil, and the pencil snapped in half. It was very bad mojo, juju, whatever it, you got. You know. <laughs> so start to open it, open the test. Teacher goes through these really long instructions and then told us to do our best. The minutes passed like hours, hours passed like days. By the time I got my juice box, I was too tired to eat the animal crackers and drink the apple juice, and I was done. But finally, it came to an end. The teacher rose at the front of the class, and she said, pencils down. Couldn't have been more happier. Pencils down. It was over. Or so I thought. It turned out that this standardized testing was going to be a perpetual event that would continue to haunt the end of the the school year. Which meant that we were going to have to relive this nightmare year in a, year after year after year. 
that this nightmare was always going to keep coming. My fellow students and I longed for the day that we'd be able to say goodbye to testing forever. That is until we found out that, uh, that the elementary and middle school standardized tests would be followed by a bigger high school test called the EOI, the end of the year instruction, which uh, us sophomores uh, aptly termed the end of your life instruction. And so you had the EOI, and then we found out that was going to be followed by the ACT and the SAT, and that would be followed by college midterm exams and final exams. And one of the things I got used to really early on in school was I learned that testing was going to be an inevitable component of my learning process. Inevitable component. Now, however you might feel about tests, you may not like standardized testing, that's all well and fine, but as imperfect as tests may be, they do have their merits. Now, to be sure they're awkward, they're uncomfortable, they're unpleasant, nobody looks forward to taking a test. Nevertheless, they're a useful tool in the learning process as they show us and they reveal what we know and what we need to learn. What we know and what we need to learn. The same is true about tests in the school of Christ. As Christians, we are like students who have joined into the instruction of God, having God himself as our teacher. And God, as a good teacher does, he tests us for our good. And as will be seen in Exodus 15, God's tests show us two things. Number one, God's tests show us the state of our dependence upon God. And number two, God's tests show us that God is always faithful. Now you might say, say, that's elementary stuff. I learned that way back in Sunday school. I don't need to keep testing about that. But there are lessons that we continue to have to learn over and over, and lessons that you will be forever learning. You will always need to know what the state of your dependence upon God is. You will always need to know that God is forever faithful. So today, as we pick back up the narrative in Exodus 15, we're going to be considering, number one, what is testing? And in the big picture of the Bible, we're going to look at this, these three tests and their place in redemptive history and what they show us about Israel in Exodus 15 through 17. Then we're going to look closely at the first test of Mara and consider how the testing at Mara applies to us as modern-day New Testament Christians. And then finally, we're going to end by considering our perfect test taker, Jesus Christ himself. Now, because we're entering into a large section that deals with testing, you're gonna, we're going to go through the next three weeks through these three big tests. I think it's helpful to stop and consider the biblical concept of testing. Specifically, what are tests in the Bible? And what are their aims? What's their purpose? And I think what you see if you go through the Bible, you find out that testing, are mo- testing times in Scripture are moments of proving, revealing, or exposing. That is, they, they uncover what is lying under the surface. It's like a probation time. How many of you have ever had a new job and you're told that there's going to be a six-month probation? You want to know why that probation time exists? Because it's one thing for you as a very objective person to say, I'm a hardworking person. It's another thing to put your money where your mouth is and prove it for six months. The probation time or the testing time is a time where it is actually revealed whether, whether or not you actually are a hardworking person. Is your work at the actually what you say it is? There's only one way to find out. Now this idea of proving or exposing is seen in Genesis 22. If you know your Bible well, 
Do you know Genesis 22 is when God told Abraham to bring his son Isaac up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him? Now, we know from the moment that God says that, that that's a test. We know that later in Deuteronomy, God's going to come back and say, do not make human sacrifices. I oppose them. I, they're, they're an abomination before me. So we know that this is making out to be a test. But Abraham, all he knows is God wants him to bring his son up to the mountain. He, all he knows is he's going to have to give his son completely over to God. And so here he is, he, puts, he builds the altar, he gets it ready, he ties up Isaac, and then Isaac is on the altar, and the knife's about to come down on Isaac when God says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. Why? For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. The test proved Abraham's inward faith that was invisible to the naked eye. It's one thing to say Abraham is faithful. Abraham is willing to give it all to God. Abraham trusts God with all that he has. It's another thing to have a test that proves it, that reveals it, that shows it, exposes Abraham's faithfulness. The testing of the Israelites worked in the same way. In fact, in Deuteronomy 8, if you want to turn there, um, Deuteronomy 8, verses 2 through 3 you're going to see Moses reflecting back on God's work in the wilderness for his people. And here's what he says. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you. Now listen to this. Testing you to know what is in your heart. Literally, to expose what's on the inside of you. To expose where your faith is. To expose what your relationship with God is like. Whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and led you uh, to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Two aims of the wilderness testing. Number one, to reveal what is on the inside of the Israelites' hearts, whether it's obedience or disobedience. Aim number two, he wants to teach them the truth about God. He's a, he's a sustainer. Every time we see the end of a test, what ends up being proven undeniably is that God sustains his people. He provides for them. He's faithful. Now, it's important to remember that these tests do not make something true. Instead, they prove what is already true. So when I had one of my co, uh, co-classmates tell me he hates tests because they make him stupid. Come on now. And here's how I comforted him. Friend, the tests don't make you stupid. They just prove you're stupid. <laughs> I mean, that's the reality of tests, right? They don't, they don't make anything true. They prove what is already true. So take, take a math exam for, for an example. A math exam is not going to make me know math, right? If you gave me a test right now, I took the, the SAT uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, no, it was at some other test. Anyway, a couple months ago, um, it was the entrance exam for uh, getting your PhD. And they, they bombarded me with all these math tests. And I said, you guys don't understand. I'm just studying theology. Um, so I take this test, and lo and behold, they have a question. Find the missing angle of this isosceles, the isosceles triangle. I didn't even know it was lost. <laughs> so I'm looking at this, and I see the numbers... 
And I'm like, we know what this angle is. We know what this angle is. You guys do the math. You're the experts. So I sit there, and like a good student does, I'm like, y'all are just proving what everybody else already knows. I don't know math. Now, the test did not make me ignorant to math. The test proved that I am ignorant in math. You know what's left to learn, Justin? How to find a missing angle on an isosceles triangle. It showed me what I know, and it showed me what I still needed to learn. When God tested Israel in the wilderness, the test did not make them faithful or unfaithful. Instead, the test proved whether Israel was already faithful inside or already unfaithful inside. The test was just an instrument of God clearing away the surface to see what was on the inside of their hearts. Exodus 16, for example, God tests his people with manna to... And to test them, he says, is because he wants to know whether or not they will walk in the Lord's law or not. The manna test did not make or cause them to obey God. It revealed whether they would obey God or not. It proved whether they would be faithful or not. Testing is like a fiery furnace that reveals your true metal. What you're made of. It exposes what is inside of us, making the invisible truth about our faith or our lack of faith visible. Now, what does this mean for your daily life? I think because tests reveal what is true about our faith and what we still need to learn about God, we can know that God uses tests to sanctify us as his people. Testing is a good thing in God's hands, right? Testing is a good instrument. Sometimes he sovereignly allows a controlled chaos to come into our lives to expose whether we trust his love, his strength, his provision, or to show us whether we will despair in our own weaknesses and in our own situations. My friends, you do not have a safe God who paves the way And gives you nothing more than you can handle. God gives you more than you can handle all the time. Because he wants to show you that he can handle it. God creates controlled chaos in your life. To show you what you should know about your own faith. It's one thing to say that you would trust God with anything, right? It's one thing to say that you will walk faithfully with God. And that you love the Lord. Prove it. The only way to prove it is to test it. Now concerning the three tests we find in Exodus 15 through 17, God will show Israel that they do not properly trust him. They haven't. It's not something that is newly found. It's been there all along. From the moment they were at the Red Sea, they did not properly trust him. And number two, it will show them that God is always faithful. Now the three tests are as follows. We have the test at Marah which we're going to look at today. That's Exodus 15, verses 22 through 27. And then we have the second test, which is in Exodus 16. And it's the test of meat and manna. And then we get to the third test, which is in Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. And and that surrounds Masa and Meribah. Now, all three tests will prove over and over and over again, same lesson every time. Israel is weak in and of themselves. Their faith is weak. And they must trust the Lord because he will never fail them. Now let's look at the first test in Exodus 15. Verses 22 and 23 describe the context in which the first test is administered. 
Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. Now, this text tells us several things. First off, it tells us the timing of the test. When did it happen? We're looking at a mere three days since the Israelites had just seen Pharaoh wiped away in the Red Sea. A mere three days since Moses raised his staff and the water split and they walked across on dry ground. Just three days. Not that long ago. It also tells us the setting. They were, in a, they were wandering around in a waterless wilderness that led eventually to bitter waters. The test could not be even more intentional than what it was. The test was absolutely intentional in that the author is calling the place three different times. It's Mara, it's Mara, it's Mara. He even says once that the water was bitter, Mara. Now that word Mara we found, find once again in Exodus 1.14 when the author of Exodus describes Israel's slavery to Egypt as Mara, bitterness. So here's the point of the test. The logic should be fairly straightforward. If God could miraculously end the bitterness of 400 years of slavery, would they trust him to end a little spring that's a little bitter? I mean, you should, you should think. They showed up in Mara. This is easy cake, right? God's done far bigger things. He's saved them from the bitterness of Pharaoh and slavery and hardship. Surely now a little bitter spring is no challenge to God. So there's the test. Are they going to trust God and see that he's the God who ends their bitterness? When they come to the bitter waters, do they say, we've done this before, God heard our cries before, we're going to cry out to God and ask him to end these bitter waters and make them sweet. Do they, do they come to Moses and say, Moses, we know you're worried about this, buddy, but listen, it's okay. God's worked before. How are they going to respond? Well, the answer is found in verse 24. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? As will be seen in future passages, grumbling is, is Israel's MO, their modus operandi of how they work. This is, this is just generally. When they come to difficulties, did they ever stop and think, God has helped us before and now we will trust Him to help us now? No, the general response to God, of God's people facing hardship, the normal response is to grumble, murmur. Now to be clear, the text doesn't blame them that they saw that no water is a big, is a big deal. They're not, they're not uh, being put down because they are worried about having no water. That's normal, right? We need water to survive. Israel needed water to survive or else all Israel's going to die. So it's not the fact that they were worried that they didn't have any water. It was how they responded to the hardship. You would think that they would turn straight to the Lord and said, Lord, end our bitterness. Instead, they grumbled against a man. Moses didn't deliver them from Egypt. He led them out of Egypt as God delivered them from Pharaoh. So they grumble against Moses, blaming him. They turn against him. How often do we do the same thing? In the same way that Israel grumbled against Moses, we tend to grumble against others and blame them for our problems, right? For our difficulties. 
When pressed by hardships, how often do we say it's not because of God and it's not because we need to call out to God and God wants to sanctify us and draw us? We tend to blame finite men who can do nothing about your bitterness. We cast judgment on the Israelites. We all say they were a grumbling bunch of people. We chuckle when we hear texts when God call, out, call them out as stiff-necked people. And yet we fail to recognize that we have the tendency to do the very same and worse. How do you respond when your health plummets? How do you respond when your relationships become stressful? When your worries become many? Do we, do we cry out to the God who loves us? And wants to answer us? Or do we blame people? Do we become bitter towards people? I had a bad relationship with my dad. And therefore I'm now angry at everyone. God can't heal your bitterness with your dad. People can't heal your bitterness with your dad. But God can. Your health is hurting and and you, you stay up late at night in pain. And writhing pain. And just unimaginable suffering and so now you're bitter towards everyone else. You're going to pour it out on everybody else. You want them to feel pain like you feel pain. They can't do anything about that. But God can. My friends, this whole point of the test for Israel is to show them that they need to call out to God. And instead, when they grumble against Moses, they show their own lack of faith. And that's the irony of our bitterness. When things go wrong in our life, the more we blame our spouse, our children, our pastor, our families, our teachers, or whoever else that are around us, the more we're showing that it's actually a lack of faith and unhealth in our part. The more we blame others for the bitterness in our own life and the lack of calling out to God to end it, the more we're showing that we actually don't trust him in the way that we should. In verse 25, Moses did what Israel should have done. They should have run to God their father, but instead they grumbled against him. But here Moses sets the example, and he cried to the Lord. And the Lord showed him a log and threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Very simply, Moses prayed, God answered. That's all they had to do from the beginning. Cry out to the Lord and he'll answer. That's not, it, it, they didn't have any clue how he'd answer probably. Moses had no idea. He calls out to the Lord and God shows him a log. He's like, God, I asked for sweet water, not a tree. But he sees the tree. God shows him the tree, shows him the direct the direct intervention that he's about to provide, and he's to throw the tree or the log into the water and it will become sweet, and it does, showing that God is the one who makes undrinkable water drinkable. He makes bitter waters sweet. The lesson could not be clear. It is the Lord who sweetens Israel's bitterness. Whereas they blamed Moses for their problem, the only solution was found in Yahweh. In their covenant God who promised that he would end their bitterness. He says as much in verses 25 and 26. There the Lord made a statue and a rule. And there he tested them saying. If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God. And do that which is right in his eyes. And give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord your healer. If Israel obeys and listens to the voice of God, they will not have to deal with the plagues that 
Egypt dealt with. Pharaoh disobeyed God, wouldn't listen to God, bowed up his chest against God, and the Nile River became undrinkable. But if Israel trusts in God, listens to God, he'll make undrinkable waters drinkable. Do you see the the vice versa there? Now this was the basis of their relationship with God. How they would respond to the Lord's commands, how they would learn to look to Him, to listen to Him, to respond to Him, would reveal their status and their relationship. Because God says, For I am the Lord your healer. It emphasizes what He wants to be for His people. It emphasizes who He wants to be for those who trust in Him. The word healer isn't just dealing with physical sickness. It has this idea of wellness and wholeness, completeness. You could, you could probably translate it as, I am the God who will make you complete. I am the God who will make you whole. I am Jehovah Rapha, God your healer. God who fills in that missing piece that you can't fill in with anything else, especially by biting and grumbling at people. All they would ever need to do or all they would ever need to find wellness and wholeness was in the Lord alone. He'll be faithful to them. He will heal them. If, however, they reject him, they'll be walking away from their own doctor, from their own physician. That's where true hurt comes. God doesn't hurt his own people in that way. If we get hurt, it's because we've walked away from our own physician. If there's sin and problems in our lives that causes all kind of pain, that didn't come straight from God. It came because we left the physician. Now, God hurts his people in sanctifying ways, for sure. But all these, this joylessness and problems and sorrow and bitterness, that comes as we walk away from the physician. If Israel would not listen to God, it would be as if they were walking away from the very one and only one who could help them. And that's exactly what they did. God had told them that they needed to do what was right in his own eyes, We find that they did the exact opposite. They did what was right in their own eyes. They chose to ignore God's words. And as a result, we find out later in Amos 4.10 that God sent them all the pestilence and plague that he sent on Egypt to get them to repent, to show them that they needed him, to show them that they are weak on their own and they cannot stand on their own two feet. They need him. And did they listen? No. Had they heeded this first test, they might have avoided the plagues of God's judgment. As a sign of his good intentions toward Israel, God led them to a specially prepared oasis called Elam. Elam's beautiful. Completely day and night different than what Mara was. Mara was known for its bitter waters, people grumbling, but Elam would be known for its date palms and for the springs, and, and it's specially made for them. How do we know it's specially made for them? Well, it's because of the numbers that we see. There are 12 springs of water, And there are 70 palm trees. Literally, there's a spring of water for every tribe of Israel, 12 tribes of Israel, and a date palm for every clan and every elder. There are 70 elders who are over over the clans in Israel. So this is God giving them, and it's, hey, I've made this particularly for you. You needed water. Moses cried out, I lead you to Elam particularly what you need, as a good doctor does. He doesn't give you a general diagnosis and general healing and a general solution. He, he makes it very personal and very particular to his people's needs. And that's what he does here. He shows them that he is his, Israel's personal provider 
intimate and near them in every way. Israel's hurt was that they found no water. God, their healer, healed their hurt by bringing them to a place where they had more than enough water. If God's people trust him, he will prove his faithfulness by personally providing for their needs. It's not this health and wealth prosperity gospel that he'll take away all your problems, but he'll give you what you need. may not be what you want, but what you need. The test was complete, but the lesson was far from over. Israel had been shown their own desperate weakness, and yet they failed to repent from that and failed to trust in God's faithfulness. And so he's going to have to give them a second test, which we'll look at next week. Now, it's easy to mock and shame the Israelites for their failures, and we could just end right here going, shame on them, right? How dare they fail this, this test, right? How dare they walk away from this test proving their own faithfulness? Shame on them. However, we have not really understood Exodus 15 until we realize that we fit into the same category of failure. The same category of failure. Uh, my friends, if you were hoping in 2019 I'd be more encouraging to your, toward your self-identity, I hope you understand that your self-identity is in Christ alone. You yourself fail test all the time. The gospel is not about how we succeed and pass our test. The gospel is about how we failed the test, and now we need somebody else to, else to pass the test for us. And so I think if we read Exodus 15, we're going to see... That this is our failure. And if testing serves as a mechanism which tracks our dependency upon God, then I think we can apply the same kind of test to our own lives. Are we self-reliant or are we relying on God? Abraham's test proved that he was dependent and trusting of God. Israel's test proved that they were self-sufficient and independent from God. So how will your test show your faith? When you, when you respond to difficulties, how do you respond? You came into 2019 with all kinds of resolution. Maybe one of them was, I want a better relationship with my wife. How do you respond when the fire gets turned up just a bit? Do you grumble against your wife? What about when things begin to fall apart outside of your control? Do you grumble against your husband then? biting their back and chewing them out and life would be so much better if only they would get their act together. Do you respond to the hardships at your job saying, it's my boss's fault, it's my co-worker's fault? Do you respond to the unhealth in your neighborhood by saying, it's that neighbor on the end? How do you respond? Because I think if you're careful to think about it, hardship comes from a sovereign God, Right? If he's all-powerful and all-controlling, then there's not one difficulty that we face that is not passed through his hands for some reason. This little cough and chest cold that I have, if God is sovereign, ultimately has passed through his hands. Now, how do I respond about it? Do I grumble against the drafty old house? Do I grumble against my wife for not having the right cough syrup? What is this test going to reveal about my heart? Do I cry out to the Lord in dependence and in faith? Or do I grumble every time I get a chance? 
If we pay careful attention to our test results, then we will see how well we are depending on the Lord. Because the test should work to bring us to greater dependency and faith. Here's what James says about testing. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. You know what the word for trials in Greek can also mean? Test. When you meet tests of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, lacking in nothing. Peter speaks similarly. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various, what? Tests. Trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Testing's good. Testing's good, and it's meant to sanctify us and to build us up and to strengthen us. There are several considerations that we can have, several applications that we gain from these verses. First, we should approach God's test with joy. My friends, when was the last time you looked at every single one of your kids and said, as rambunctious and crazy as you are, you are a joy? When was the last time you were thankful that God gave you the flu, allowed you to go through it? When was the last time you were thankful that life wasn't easy? Because now you can have joy knowing that your faith is being tested and made genuine. My friends, we bemoan tests. Ah, oh, they're coming again. What a nightmare. Ah, oh, why doesn't it get any better? Why do I have to keep going through this? Because, my friends, God wants you to understand that he is a physician who has your overall health in mind even more than your temporary immediate comfort. He's a physician who will poke and prod and stretch. He'll raise the scalpel. Not for your hurt, but for your good. He's a good physician. I don't know about you, but my physician still gives me shots. I still cry more than my children. (laughs) But he's a good physician because he knows that I probably ought to take a malaria shot if I'm going to go to Africa. He knows that I've got to go through the the, the little pain of a shot in the arm, so I don't have to go through the massive pain of malaria. Good physicians work that way. They're not just out for your comfort. They're out for your wholeness, your wellness, altogether. So it's a joy. We should see it as a joy. It doesn't mean we have to like it. it. doesn't mean we have to like it, but it does mean that we have to have joy when we consider it. Second, we must consider how our tests are causing us to grow. Both James and Peter talked about the testing genuineness of our faith. Peter talked about how it causes us to have steadfastness. That works to uh, our, our greater faithfulness in the end. So no matter how difficult your test may be or whatever your test may be, they're meant to cause you to become more faithful. Not less faithful, more faithful. What hard family situations have you dealt with this year? How have you responded, negatively and positively? And what way can you respond in a better, more faithful way next time? You wouldn't have known unless you went through that test. You wouldn't have known unless you had taken the test. I wouldn't know where I'm at on the math scale without taking the test. 
Praise the Lord, I'm a normal person. I'm on the bad end of the scale when it comes to math. But some of us need to recognize where we're at on the scale of our faithfulness and realize that God gives us tests because he wants us to progress. He wants us to get more faithful. He wants us to become more more faith-filled people who trust his goodness. Third, and finally, we must remember that God's tests result in the greatest good possible. The glory of God. Now we look at this and we say, yeah, 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 I know everything works to the glory of God. It's kind of become cliche, right? You get four flat tires and someone reminds you that's for the glory of God and you're like, yeah, thanks. Right? Or you get the flu and you're like, ah, someone prays that you will glorify God while you have the flu and you're like, you're an insane lunatic. I'm not going to glorify God in the flu. But I think if we could look forward to the day of Christ coming back, when his glory is set on full display, I don't think any Christian will be belittling or bemoaning the fact that God used their suffering for his glory. It's the greatest honor possible. A diamond's just a diamond. And sure, it's brilliant and beautiful and shiny. But the greatest honor that a diamond could ever have is being placed on the ring finger of a beautiful woman. In the same way, you're just a person in a fallen world. But until you learn to shine brightly for the bridegroom, you won't realize your full purpose and honor. What a great honor it is that we approach our suffering knowing that it will result in the end to the glory of God. Not just theoretically, but practically. Christ shines bright through his people. And that only happens when tests come and test our faith, and then our faith, as tested by fire, is proven genuine. I've heard lots of people say that they're healthy in their walk with God, that they glorify God in all things. Wait for them to stub their toe to prove it. Wait for them to lose their job to prove it. Wait for them to get sick to prove it. Wait for them to take a good full look at their own mortality to prove it. Wait for them to be filled with a room full of people they cannot stand to prove it. That's what tests are for. It's one thing to say you want to glorify the God. It's quite another thing to do it. So do you know what you're asking for? Your tests work for the glory of God. Now, we're going to end really quickly because we have a baptism to see today. Might be able to hold Mark under a little longer to see if he glorifies God through it. <laughs> I don't think we can consider Israel's testing without, and our testing without also considering the perfect test taker. Adam failed his test, right? God said, don't eat from the fruit. And what happened when a little bit of testing came, a little bit of temptation came? What happened? He failed. Israel failed their test, we fail our test, but then we see another person being led out into the wilderness. Led out into the wilderness. Now, in some translations, we say that it was temptation, and it was. On Satan's end, it was temptation. But the same word for temptation is also testing. So what was the temptation of Satan was also God proving, testing his son's righteousness, showing that his son really is righteous. Few of us have probably been t- tempted, few of us have probably been tempted by Satan himself. 
most of us have not, are not that big of hitters. <laughs> you know, if Satan's like Josh Hamill of the pitchers, right? We've not hit against Josh Hamill yet. We've hit against the, the minor class guys, the minor league guys. But Jesus goes up the bat against the best pitcher in the league. What's it going to prove about his skill, about his perfection? He doesn't strike out. He's three for three. Here's what happens when Satan comes and he says, and Jesus, faced with hunger, just like the Israelites, faced with hunger, just like the Israelites, here's what he says. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Well, he passed that test. What about when he's tempted to test God's protection? How do you know God's really for you? Jump off the top of the temple. What does Jesus say? You shall not put the Lord your God to test. He passed that test. But then here comes immediate glory, a crossless glory, a a glory that avoids suffering. Bow to Satan, and I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. And glory forever and ever, and you don't have to die for it. Well, Jesus then did what Adam failed to do, and he chased off the serpent. He said, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus passed the test. But he didn't just pass the test to avoid sinning and to get out of sin. He passed the test by avoiding suffering, by not avoiding suffering. It's one thing to say, I'm not going to sin, I'm not going to sin. But what about when that not going to sin also leads you down the path of a cross? Did Jesus pass the test that said, I'm willing to die to pass the test? Well, Philippians 2.8 says he did. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. God's test proved Christ righteous and faithful, both in the wilderness and at Golgotha. And because he is the perfect test taker, he takes the test for us. And if we trust in him, though I cannot make 100%, he does, he did, it's my grade, and it's counted for my righteousness. And now I've passed the test. Not because it was my grade, but because it was the grade he gave to me. Not because I was good at passing the test. I failed it, I bombed it but because he's the perfect test taker. And here's what's even crazier. Jesus died passing the test. He was buried and he rose again, proving that he was the perfect one, that he was the son of God in power. But then we have this crazy promise that he's not going to leave us in our imperfection, but he's going to make us perfect. He's going to make us test passers. So not only is he the one that takes our test for us, he actually becomes our tutor. Our teacher. And then we have this great promise that John gives us. Beloved, we are God's children now. That means right now we belong to God. We are His. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see Him as He is. Now listen to this. Everyone who hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. My friends, you're going to face a lot of tests in 2019. Some of you have already failed most of the tests that have come in 2019. Instead of amping up for 2019 saying that you're going to pass your test, why not look to the perfect test taker and learn from him? 
look to him. He passed the test of righteousness so you could be in the presence of God. But he also continues to show us what righteousness is. So my friends, tests are a good thing. Given by a good instructor. Let's welcome the test with joy. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the test that you give us. God, I pray that you will help us be able to um, trust in you in all things. Father, that our test will reveal us to be more faithful, more trusting of you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.